The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us again. Pleasure to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, why don't you kick us off, please? Thanks, John. So with the risk of touching the third rail of uh, finance podcasting here, we're going to talk about crypto and this whole debacle at FTX. And when this story unfolded over the last week or 10 days, I just became fascinated by it and thought that doesn't make it, there's no reason to avoid this. There's too much going on here. It's too fascinating. We have to talk about this. And look, I, Ellie and I were just talking about this offline. And it doesn't matter whether you're a crypto skeptic, a crypto bull, a crypto bear, a crypto agnostic. I'm all of those things except for the crypto bull. Like I've definitely never been glass half full or optimistic about anything pertaining to crypto, but that's fine. Like I've always tried really hard to try to keep an open mind about the topic. I've certainly never devoted a, a penny, and it's ironic that we're you know still quoting everything in, in U.S. currency, U.S. dollars. But I've certainly never devoted a penny to crypto either personally or professionally but i have intentionally devoted you know literally over the last 10 years the, the first time i came into being aware of crypto was was twofold one was at my old firm when one day i walked in this was either i'd have to go back and think about it it was either 2011 or early 2012 i i came in one morning uh, there was another guy who was usually in early with me. You know, it's like six o'clock in the morning, and we we turn on our computers and try to open up a file, and everything's encrypted. And we realized that the poor guy in the back office the night before had clicked on a phishing link, <laughs> fallen fallen prey to a scam, and had infected our servers. Back then, we still had physical servers in a back room that stored all of our files. There was no cloud, or we weren't on the cloud back then. So everything that we had done, everything on our servers was encrypted. And thankfully, we had backup servers on a remote location that backed things up every couple of days. So we didn't end up losing everything. We just told, we lost whatever had happened the day before, maybe 48 hours worth of stuff. But that's the first time I ever became aware of anything pertaining to crypto was because the hackers had demanded ransomware in Bitcoin. And then about a year later, uh, a very, very unscrupulous uh, analyst that I had unfortunately come to know uh, was a huge crypto bull and he was preaching nonstop about the virtues of all this stuff. And I just tried to disassociate myself with the guy as much as I could at every available opportunity. But he was a big, huge fan and got very deeply caught up in the Mt. Gox failure, which was 2014. That was the Magic the Gathering online exchange, literally born out of the trading card game. It was, in a lot of ways, an early precursor for FTX, uh, you know, born out of this idea that crypto was the future and that there was, you know, a lot to be done in this industry. But anyway, if you fast forward to today, the reason that I thought we'd bring this up and talk about it today is because I think this is a seminal moment in the industry and in this little subculture because, you know, look, it's always been pretty obvious that there were problems here. It's always been pretty obvious that there were bad actors here and that there were a lot of bad things happening in this industry, but it was always drowned out by the bulls who said, you know, look, this just takes time. 
any wild west, any new frontier is going to attract speculators and bad actors at first, but we'll just get it cleaned up. And thank goodness we have good actors out there like FTX. And everybody pointed to Sam Bankman-Fried as this hyper genius. You know, it, it was like the simplest story. I mean, he was like checking every box a VC could ever want. Went to MIT, was a quantitative quantitative trader at Jane Street, you know, had an incredible family and background and was undoubtedly an extremely high IQ guy. And he was very uh, persuasive in the media. And from a standing start just a couple of years ago, became ubiquitous, right? Hanging out with Tom Brady and his now ex-wife Giselle with celebrity endorsements, putting his name on the NBA arena for the Miami Heat, putting the FTS X patch on every Major League Baseball umpire's uniform in the past couple of years. It was hard to look anywhere and not see FTX. And the whole thing has come smoldering down in a heap of ashes in a very short period of time, which A, shouldn't be that surprising given how quickly it had risen, right? It's simply not possible to go from not existing in 2019 to worth $32 billion in January of 2022 and not have had something insane going on. So that's step number one. And if something insane is going on, of course it can reverse in a short period of time. And that's what's so staggering about the details that have all come out here just in the month of November, which was that namely, there was, again, forget, let's just suspend disbelief here about whatever you think about crypto. There was so much malfeasance going on here that is just mind-boggling. And the fact that the venture capitalists who are wrapped up in this didn't stop it is, is probably the part that I find the most fascinating. So look, before I get into the list of sins here, I'll take another step back and say venture capital is an unabashedly good thing for the world and for the country and for the economy. And we need venture capitalists who take risks and fund unlikely projects. That is absolutely a valid thing and it needs to be done. And thank goodness they're out there doing that. At the same time, I don't see how that has anything to do with putting $2 billion into a company where the CEO is playing video games on the call where he's presenting to you a PowerPoint deck that was made up like two hours before and doesn't have any you know, has, has, is full of typos and misspellings and is just, you know, slapped together. A company that literally doesn't have a board of directors. And when they cave and do create a board of directors, it consists of one insider and one gaming lawyer in Antigua who's friends with the CEO. It doesn't consist with giving $2 billion to an organization that has no CFO and apparently had a balance sheet and a set of books and records that was kept on a Google spreadsheet that would make like, my local, you know, car wash look professionally run. I mean, it's just staggering when you look at what was happening here and and the details that are now coming out about the books and records here. And it certainly wouldn't entail giving money to a exchange, a company that purported to be an exchange where the more than 50% owner of the exchange is the 100% owner or near 100% owner of a hedge fund that does all of its business through that exchange. And then when that hedge fund gets in trouble because it's levered God knows how many times making all sorts of speculative investments and starts to blow up, the CEO of the exchange takes billions and billions of dollars of customer assets and puts it into the hedge fund to try to bail out his own hedge fund. Like that is just staggering. That pattern of facts. And again, full disclaimer here, as, as we're recording this on November 16th, that's as things are known today, right? We know that the company's filed bankruptcy. We know the rough size. We know that there's a multi-billion dollar hole here. We know that the CEO has resigned, but is still tweeting schizophrenically about what may or may not have gone wrong. We know there was a massive capital hole. In the balance sheet, we know there was some, quote, internally mislabeled transfer of funds or however he characterized it. We, we don't necessarily know the details. I'm sure this will all come out in due course, likely in, in courts, uh, if in fact he doesn't abscond with whatever he has left to some foreign jurisdiction as has been rumored. But the fact remains that we got to this point, which is so astounding that nobody stopped to ask or look at these questions, or if they did, they didn't seem to care. And the part that I find even more astounding that they didn't do that, because look, speculative manias are as old as the hills, and th they often get to these points of just pure absurdity. But it was that he was out there, and by, by he, I mean Sam Bankman-Fried, was out there in the media basically telling everybody what they wanted to know. I mean, the last time I thought about bringing this up to John and Elliot, to you guys about 
talking about this on the podcast was back in April. So as you guys well know, I'm a big fan of anything Matt Levine has to say in his writing or in a, in a podcast he might do or whatever. And he went on the Bloomberg Odd Lots podcast back in April where he was interviewing Sam Bankman-Fried. And he got into this conversation about digital tokens and about yield farming. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's readily available out there. You can just look it up yourselves. But Sam Bankman-Fried goes into this explanation of it. And if you can you know, distill down the endless amounts of BS and jargon that he's constantly spewing, he admits that, look, you just put this stuff in a box. The box doesn't really have any reason to exist and really shouldn't have any intrinsic value, but it does because other people think it does. And because they're going to put more money in, you can just sort of peel some yield off of the top. And Matt Levine says, you're just like, well, I'm in the Ponzi business and it's pretty good. And and Sam Bankman-Fried replies, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable response. There's a depressing amount of validity and basically admits right right then and there that the whole thing is just a giant Ponzi scheme and a scam and there's nothing going on. I mean, it reminds me of when Elon Musk went on Saturday Night Live, was it a year or two ago now, and admitted that Dogecoin was just a hustle. And I mean, it was right out there in the open, right? It's not like anybody was, I mean, there may have been other elements of fraud going on here for sure, but like the basic element of the fact that this was all nonsense was just right out there. And then we come out to find that that FTX had issued this own its own form of currency, its own token called FTT, and that that was like 88% of the equity at Alameda, the hedge fund, was in its holdings, which is just made up pure thin air of FTT, right? I mean, it's just astounding that this kind of stuff was going on and that these otherwise really smart people, I mean, look, there's good reason to believe that Sequoia is the best venture capital firm in the world. It's been around forever. It's backed like every big company you'd ever care to think about. Uh, you know, the, the collective IQ of the people coming in and out of that building every day is just off the charts. And the financial returns they've posted are unbelievable. And yet here we are where they had a meeting with this guy on a Zoom call where he's literally so distracted playing a video game that he can barely be bothered to answer some of their basic questions or a lot of their basic questions that weren't answered. And that these partners at Sequoia think it was like such a brilliant blow your hair back kind of meeting that they're just like, here, take all our money. And we don't care that you don't have a board of directors, let alone us getting a seat on it. We don't care that you don't have a CFO. We don't care that this is the most blatant conflict of interest in the history of man. Here you go. Right. And so that, that's, it's, it's really not, it sounds like a criticism. It, it's, it's way, way, way less a criticism of those venture capitalists than it is just an astounding observation of the power of this sort of stuff to go completely and totally bananas and spiral completely out of control. And so I I don't know where this leads from here. I It, it has definitely made me stop and rethink. We, we've done an episode on here about the golden age of fraud. That's Jim Chanos's uh, epithet for this era. And I, I, I said at the time that I thought fraud was cyclical. I thought that we were at a cyclical upswing in fraud because of the era of easy money and just kind of the pervasive speculative mania that was taking over large parts of the world. But I didn't think that it was necessarily the definitive golden age of fraud. Now, I, this is just one more big giant nail in that coffin for him. I, I don't know if I can really say that. There's just been so much nonsense going on lately. All these magic beans were, you know, this guy who's worth $32 billion is coming out and saying, or I guess he was only worth 25. The company was worth $32 billion a few weeks ago on paper. And it is literally just referring to this outright Ponzi scheme as magic and people with 175 IQ and billions of dollars at their disposal and a fiduciary responsibility to all the major pensions and university endowments out there says, yeah, no, we agree. Give us some of that magic. Like it's just unbelievable. You throw in meme stocks like AMC and GameStop and NFTs and you know all these nonsense companies trading at 30 times revenues that are all going to go away. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if we're going to see a ton of prosecutions here. I would imagine there will be prosecutions related to FTX. Um, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. Like I, I get it. There's a reason he was in the Bahamas. There's a reason, though, that the Bahamas authorities are maybe not letting him leave the country. There's a reason why wire fraud is wire fraud. I mean, pretty much anything that crosses you know, U.S. shores, whether it's an email or a bank transfer or, you know, any sort of physical transaction can be prosecuted here. So it's a matter of extradition at that point. Uh, It doesn't seem like too high a bar here when you have the 10th biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history that there will be 
more ramifications to come here. And I mean, literally within the last couple of hours, he was posting just unhinged threads on Twitter about what did or did not happen and saying that he thought leverage was 5 billion, but it was really 13. Oops. Like it, this is definitely not the end of this story. We will be hearing about this for weeks and months and years to come. This is going to be, I've been describing, this is crypto Enron and there will be books and movies written about this. Ironically enough, no less a bubble authority himself than Michael Lewis was embedded with Sam Bankman Fried for the last like six months traveling around with him. And he was going to write, I presume, at least as it was characterized by sources that were close to it, apparently as a, as a positive profile and book, a hagiography almost of him. Uh, that's ended a little differently now. So we will be hearing about this for a long, long time. And I think the ramifications are just beginning. I think there's almost no way to unwind. I mean, he'll be the first to admit, right? In this interview that I was talking about back in April, he talks about how this can go on to infinity. You know, this this sort of Ponzi element of depositing tokens in a box and then just yield farming a little piece off the top continuously, which, you know, for somebody that bright is kind of hilarious. But I guess it's true, like when there's nothing there, when there is no reality, I guess it could go to infinity in theory, but like what would make you think it ever would? And as soon as something topples it over, like CZ at Binance, which again, seems like that's not the end of that story either. You know, there's just so much more yet to come. And I think it's almost all bad. And I'm fascinated. I think this is is one of the more uh, indicative stories of our time. So with that, I'll get off the soapbox and open it up to you guys to hear what you think. Yeah, no, you teed that up perfectly because um, you covered the intelligent part of this week in intelligent investing. And I'm going to cover some of the more tabloidy parts because this is just such an insane story. And it's going to be an amazing movie. And it's really sad how much regular people got hosed along the way. And the fact that um, it had to come to this. So, you know, you mentioned Sequoia getting blown off by Bankman Freed while playing video games. I think one of the one of the bizarre elements is you have this, you know, eccentric genius trope where the weirder and more bizarre he acted, the more people seem to just take to him. And there are tweets that I've seen resurfaced from, you know, five years ago where he talks about taking amphetamines first thing yeah. in the morning and yeah. sleeping pills to go to sleep at night and, you know, interviews where he's visibly hopped up on amphetamines. And, you know, you take those every day for a long time, you're going to lose your freaking mind. I, I mean, I don't understand how people could know that publicly, see some of those behaviors and then just be like, eh, guy looks the prototypical genius, so he must be. And then, I mean, let's talk about the the families of some of the key figures involved, right? Uh, Sam Bankman Freed, two last names from his mom and dad. The dad Bankman is a Stanford law professor who specializes in tax evasion. I mean, conspiracy theorists are already going to town on this. Uh, the Freed name, his mom, also a Stanford law professor, um, kind of a specialist in ethics who operated at the intersection of like politics, law, philosophy. I mean, that's pretty, um, you know, good fodder for the conspiracy theorists again. And, um, the, the, his girlfriend who was in a sex ring with all the people that they lived in one house with in the Bahamas, 10 people. And, you know, VCs didn't really like question any of this sort of stuff along the way. Her, she's 28 years old, was running Alameda, the hedge fund, and her father is the head of the MIT economics department. So these are, you know, you, you, you'd you say uh, parents like that would have genius kids, maybe, is one way some of these people dismiss that. But, um, you know, there's some really weird elements to this all. And then you think about the fact that... Um, not long ago, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was on the stage with Giselle in the Bahamas, and you had Tom Brady and Giselle as notable uh, brand ambassadors and investors in FTX. So today, Clay Thompson had $20 million of his $37 million salary last year put in Bitcoin on FTX, apparently. That story is still developing. Maybe it's 
slightly different than what I'd just read, but something along those lines. Shaq was involved, um, you know, and Michael Lewis following him around. This stuff's just absolutely, you couldn't concoct a wilder script than this. I think it would be rejected for being a little too far-fetched in, in the movie genre at first. And yeah, the other thing that I, that I thought was so amazing along those lines, Elliot, was that I, I just remember reading, and again, I never spent any time doing any sorts of homework on FTX per se, but this guy was ubiquitous. You couldn't avoid him. And the handful of times that I tried to listen to whatever he had to say ranged from you know just impenetrable jargon and BS that I couldn't begin to wrap my head around or the moments like the April 2022 interview with Matt Levine on the Odd Lots podcast that I talked about where he just openly said, you know, the bad part out loud, which kind of blew my, my blew, to, to quote the Sequoia VCs, blew my hair back, right? It was just unbelievable. <laughs> I couldn't believe he was saying that out loud. But what went back even further was that I think it was at least a year, year and a half ago, he admitted out loud that the whole like frizzy fro like baggy shorts and t-shirt slubby thing was just a total pretense right i mean it's a lot like elizabeth holmes doing the 180 when she started to lose a little bit of control at the company and deciding to dress in the black turtleneck all the time because that's what steve jobs did he admitted out loud that that was all just a total construct because it sold well right like people you know, like you said, it just sort of fit this mold of like the eccentric this is, genius trope. This is this is the mad scientist who's just got it all figured out. And so I, this quote from this guy in this Bloomberg article, we can link to it as well. He was another venture capitalist who did not invest in FTX. So there's some bias on his side here too, for sure. But he said the extent of the due diligence for the venture capitalist was the kid went to MIT, talks fast, sleeps on a beanbag chair, and Sequoia's in. <laughs> and, they're all, and they're all just like, here's my money. Just just take my money. Take all of it. And it's like, yeah, wow, that's that's pretty much all it took to get this train rolling down the tracks. It's just staggering. It really is. And, you know, I mean, there's something to be said about the fact that the rise of Bitcoin from nowhere just attracted a certain kind of actor. Now, I wrote, you, you know, I followed Bitcoin since very early on. I wasn't the earliest person exposed to it. And I say followed because it took me a long time to even put a dollar into Bitcoin. And I had Ethereum for a long time until last week. I was like, screw this, I'm out. Um, I don't want to lose whatever I've got left. And by the way, just, just to be totally clear, I would have never bought Ethereum in the first place had I not won my fantasy baseball league in the perfect year to put money into Ethereum. Um, so I'll just put that out there. Uh, to begin with, I wrote an essay in November, November 11th of 2013. So interestingly, you know, nine years ago from the time we're recording this, called The Rise and Inevitable Fall of Bitcoin, and then wrote a follow-up essay a week later on Bitcoin's worldview and why it matters. And, you know, you'll hear some people hand wave this away as part of the process of maturation in crypto and a necessary cleansing that'll set the stage for a better future. But um, I, I, I would approach such arguments with a degree of skepticism. Um, and I don't mean to, I, I, I think there's something really promising with crypto, with Ethereum, and to a lesser extent, Bitcoin. These are just personal opinions of mine. But I, I do think there's something to be said about the fact that from the beginning, there was this political, and I don't mean political in the left-right sense. I mean, there was an anarcho-capitalist bent to Bitcoin's reason to exist and why certain people found it appealing. And some might point out that Bankman Freed ascribed to a philosophy that is contra that. And, you know, I, I would say the reality is the nature of uh, Bitcoin rising from anarcho-capitalism created the perfect vulnerability for this kind of massive uh, Ponzi scheme, right? There's no other word for it. Ponzi scheme to take place. Um, and that's an inherent problem. And I think it's been wild just watching this happen and thinking about what other knock-on effects might transpire from here. Um, you really don't know who your custodian is in Bitcoin. You might be inclined to operate your, to have your own cold storage device, 
That could be tricky. I mean, I'm not the most technically savvy person. Um, I moved my Ethereum around just to get a feel for it from one wallet to the next, moved it to a thumb drive, et cetera. Um, I had ordered a cold storage thing, but you know they were way back ordered and I canceled it before they became available. So I can't say it went that far. But you know, the very fact that you need these things and don't have it is troubling. I think it's good that you're starting to see some real uh, institutional custodians step up. I think that could be a, a very consequential change, but there needs to be something fundamentally different. And the degree of, even if you know FTX were totally clean, the degree of leverage that some of these people were operating with, I had a friend telling me that he found this coin that guaranteed like 25% uh, interest rates just by virtue yeah. of holding the coin. Well, that's, and what, he's they not someone that's what they were all doing. Yeah, that's what this yield farming discussion was alluding to. And, and at one point, Alameda Research was out raising debt capital. And I can, there's a screenshot of it still available. The, the deck they were giving to investors guaranteed 15 and 18% rates of return. Guaranteed. Said there's no risk. This absolutely will I happen. I saw that. It's crazy. It's, a, like, it's unreal. Where do people's like senses get thrown to the wind with such things? Like, you know, if there's any kind of guaranteed return at that rate, um, you know, by definition, it has immense risk. Yeah, it's un, it's unbelievable. You know, the other thing I want to bring up real quickly too, which I think is relevant, but I came across Sand Bankman Freed was I listened to uh, Tyler Cowen's podcast quite a bit. I think he's really good. I like the way he writes. I like the way he thinks. He's definitely a polymath and a very bright guy. And he's a very good interviewer. Like uh, he, he's... I'm I'm shocked at what a good interviewer he is at times. And he interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried some months ago. I think it was earlier this year. We'll, we, we can find the link and send it around or you can look it up. But he interviewed him all about this topic of effective altruism. And you know that's not that difficult of a phil philosophical idea to understand. There was a professor in the UK who came over and met Sam Bankman-Fried when I believe he was still an undergraduate at MIT or maybe had just recently graduated and explained this whole idea to him. And it became his religion. It became his reason for being. And it really drove him at a very intense, deeply motivated level to make as much money as he possibly could because he assumed that if he was giving it all away, or not all away, but you know, the majority of it away, that he was doing good for the world. And it's also stunning to me that when you look across history at a lot of things that have gone wrong, whether they're holy wars or financial frauds or whatever you may have, how many of them actually started out with the perpetrators doing things that they firmly believed in and thought they were on the wrong side of, or thought they were on the right side of history by doing. So they, they thought that they were actually contributing to the world by doing this. And I was reading some of these articles about people that used to work at FTX or were still at FTX and the inside when this all happened. They said that the company and... Sam Bankman-Fried himself were defined by this philosophy of betting big. And he said, every, every big decision is related to acquiring more leverage. And whether that started out as just pure leverage or deceptive fundraising leverage or you know, kind of cooking the books potentially leverage, as it looks like we may have engaged in here at the end. It, it was, you know, if we just if we ended up at outright fraud, we probably didn't start out, out start out at outright fraud, which is often how these things do get going. And it's amazing, right? Because there just didn't seem to have, there was no thought of risk or downside here. It was just, I got to get big. I got to get big. I got to get big. I got to do as quickly as I possibly can. And because it worked so well for 24, 36 months there, it just seemed like there was no way this could go anywhere else except up, except all of a sudden it didn't. And it blew up absolutely spectacularly. And I, I find it truly, truly fascinating that that might have been one of the root causes. Well, I was going to jump in real quick, but I think you guys know what, what I think of the whole um, thing. And it's, <laughs> it's not a very uh, nuanced view, so um, I'll, I'll just keep it brief. But I think, you know, if crypto is a house of cards, then it's really hard to build anything solid on top of that. Um and and I think it goes back to incentives as well. I mean, the incentives in a lot of these things are just 
just just extremely uh, skewed, and they invite uh, the kind of behavior that is now being revealed. Um, and so it's really no surprise, you know. I think um, it's just human nature that if you if if the incentives are such that you can take advantage of others, a lot of people will do it. And you know, this space is just so underregulated or unregulated that you can have things like promising, you know, guaranteed yields of 15, 20%, whatever it is. I mean, try that in in uh, in regulated finance. Um, you're gonna you could end up in jail or get fined or or what have you. And the crypto world um, is a is a wild west, but people's real money has been at stake and has been lost. So I I really don't understand how the regulators have just been completely um, asleep here, because you know retail well, retail people are getting hurt. If, I don't That's know, one problem. It it fits in between regulatory right. exactly. <laughs> Did you, see, did you see the comments yesterday? Charlie Munger actually gave an interview on uh, to Becky Quick, and he he said it basically exactly that. He's like, "Look, the regulators, of course, they're going to miss big chunks of this because it, it, who has jurisdiction? Who who has responsibility here? Who even understands this? Right? Like your average bureaucrat, even if he or she is extremely capable and qualified and is trying to do right by the world, which I think does describe the vast majority of them." This is a tough one, right? I mean, this is a brand new thing dreamed up out of the ether, pardon the pun, and it's not like something you've been trained or have you've ever even thought about how to deal with. So I think it's totally natural that they would miss it. And one of the other things, I didn't really realize this until, but Senators uh, Lummins and Gillibrand from Wyoming and New York State, respectively, I didn't realize that they had been out as recently as I think June or July of this year, this summer publicly plugging crypto and specifically Bitcoin and saying that all retirees should have it as part of a diversified retirement account. And it was unbelievable. Somebody sent around the clip and, and I was re-watching it. And then Senator Lummins was back on TV again this week. A little bit of a mea culpa, but not really. But what became totally clear was that she just had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. She didn't understand the current regulatory environment, let alone what the prospective one should look like. She didn't understand the first thing about how crypto actually worked. And yet here she was, a sitting United States senator, recommending this junk to retirees. Like I, I found that absolutely stunning. I don't know how I missed that, but that's mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, how irresponsible. It's a weird world. Yeah, it turns out, of course, that she had owned a lot of crypto herself, which, you know, again, everyone has their own bias and self-interest there, but I just, I don't know. So, and now of course, again, well, but you'd that, hope if she says that she does herself too. Yeah, so I guess that's right? a two way yeah, street. You don't want someone out there saying, Oh, everyone should own it, but not me. No, of course. But I just think it's so bad when you allow your own biases to just, you know, hotwire your own mind and drive into the ditch, but then you take everybody else with you. Like I just, I don't know. But of course, now she's talking about, and this is where I think where this will probably go from here is there will be lots of attention and high level inquiries and the bankruptcy process, which is being overseen by the guy who unwound the Enron estate, by the way. So my whole crypto Enron analogy is not totally misplaced. The, the, the parallels run deep. We can only hope and pray that we get a Bethany McLean book out of this next. That would be an amazing icing on the cake. But, you know, I think the the way that the other side, the optimistic, the perma bull side will try to spin this is we just needed this. We needed to shake out the bad actors. This will be a good thing because now we'll get good regulation. And it's like, well, wait a minute, guys, you can't have it both ways. You knew that this was being run offshore first in Hong Kong and then in the Bahamas purposefully to avoid regulation. You didn't want regulation. And by the way, this whole like, double standard like backstabbing that Sam Bankman-Fried was doing in Washington with the regulators is what pissed off the Binance guy, Peng Zhao, so much that he you know, started this whole bonfire that took the company down. So you can't tell me that this is like a good thing and like we just need more regulation now. And, and by the way, like the whole founding mythology with Satoshi's white paper is like, we're doing this because we don't believe in regulation and there shouldn't be such a thing as a central bank or a, or a, a government controlled currency. And it's like, 
you can't have it both ways. And so, but I'm sure that's where this asinine argument will devolve into for at least a period of months and years going forward. I I, I think there's a, some people who are beholden to the anarcho-capitalist view that are like, wow, this is really bad because it's going to invite regulation. But uh, yeah, that's probably true of a minority. Fair enough. You're right. There There is the hardcore truther out there that that just wants to be completely off the grid when it comes to the government. That That's fair. And there's a line that, you know, SBF with FTX was one of the people pulling things to a more centralized regime. And that one of the beauties of this is you once again uh, see why there should be decentralization. And there are other ways to build exchanges even that are completely distributed. And there's like interesting premises, but a lot of the stuff when it comes together doesn't exactly make sense anyway. But you can't, um, I mean, I mean, going back to the days of trading like pieces of flint or gold bars or tulips or whatever, there's no evidence in the history of humankind that we can self-organize in a truly deregulated way and not have these unbelievable catastrophes and blowups, right? I mean, look, we could sit here and whine and complain about the Federal Reserve all we want, but you know, central banking and the FDIC and all this stuff is what everybody clamors for as soon as there's a disaster and a meltdown, right? And then as long as times are good, everybody's like, oh, I want to be... I'm a libertarian. I want to be completely and totally hands off here. And it's like, well, again, that's fine. You can you can believe that even if it's contrary to all the evidence that's out there, but you can't have it both ways. It's just not possible. Like the number of people I've read whining about, like, where were the regulators here? Or like, ooh, I invested with only FTX because I thought the regulators had my back and this was like the good guys. Like it's just mind-blowing. The cognitive dissonance is just staggering. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you might want not you, you, but like the general you might want to call Bitcoin uh, a digital form of hard money. But the amount of leverage here makes it an entirely different beast and far more like money as we know it. (laughs) And it's not all that different than fiat at the end of the day, where it's like built communal trust. And the only real difference is that it's separate and apart from uh, government's sovereignty. And that's, you know, as you're seeing, not necessarily a good thing in certain contexts. And it's not as pure as one would want it to believe. What I still think is fundamentally interesting about Bitcoin and about crypto and what I think Satoshi got, uh, got right in building something fascinating is creating a way to have like digital scarcity. That's true, where you could really establish in code, uh, create create something that's inherently finite. And you could eventually tie it to things that are tangible and physical. Um, but, you know, I, I still think uh, I'm waiting to see the promise turn into something actual. That's not just some form of fake financial engineering, which is typically worse than what we see in our own financial system. So, so to your point, to your point though, like I, I've asked this to anyone who is knowledgeable on it and that does not necessarily include me. I've tried to understand, but I am uh, in a lot of ways still a novice and by no means am I a cryptographer. In no way do I understand a lot of the engineering that goes into this, but we have a pseudonymous white paper that comes out that has developed the algorithm that leads to Bitcoin, right? We know that much. But then I ask everyone involved who's staked their entire lives or their reputations on this and said, okay, so this this was created to be limited in, in what is it, 21 million Bitcoin or whatever it is? And yep. how do you, how can you guarantee me that that algorithm cannot be cracked? Because it was created by a human and we're supposedly on the cusp of quantum computing. It, it just seems totally logical to me that if this does become worth not just whatever the market cap is of Bitcoin today, but hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars, that the incentives will be so strong that someone will crack it. And that just seems like the most obvious thing in the world. I mean, that was always the appeal of gold, was that gold is a physical thing and you have a, a, a relatively functioning market that says this is how much gold is out there. And this is completely fake. I mean, this is just made up by one person or one group of people. There's nothing about the natural world that limits the amount of Bitcoin that's out there. So why couldn't someone subvert the cryptography and create more Bitcoin once we hit that number? Yeah. Or why couldn't Satoshi have built a backdoor? I don't know. Exactly. I strongly recommend exactly. reading this book, Digital Cash by Finn Brunton, which is like 
a history of all the experiments in uh, cryptography that led to Bitcoin. Because I think one thing people take for granted is that Satoshi's paper didn't just come up out of thin air and magically bring about this innovation, if you're willing to accept that label for it. There were like decades of experimentation with trying to create something of this kind. Um, And there were like half steps and failures and some seeming successes along the way uh, in trying to go to something that was like a foolproof ledger. Mm. And so I think there's a lot more history behind what went into there. And there were people who were like in the know, following the developments in the space, who were able to recognize where things were. Now I'm speaking in very vague terms because I'm not technical at all won't claim to be. And I don't really know exactly how or why this may or may not be true. Um, But I think it's important to establish that this was something that didn't come out of thin air, contrary to like conventional wisdom. It it was many decades of effort. So... No, I'm not saying came out of thin air in the sense of like... I'm not saying you are either, but there there were people who were like looking for something like this, who who had a sense of... What the technical limitations were and where things were, uh, who kind of been, took to this very early. That's always been, I think, the only single glass half full element of the whole thing that I can ever get to is that, you know, look, people get delusional, they get misled, they talk themselves into all sorts of nonsense. But there are, there's a whole group, a whole subculture of some extremely high IQ people that have been working on this now for several decades. And in particularly in the era of cryptocurrencies for well over one decade now. And if you give a bunch of smart people enough runway, eventually they usually make some sort of progress with it. And so, you know, that that work continues. It hasn't completely faded and gone away yet. But at the same time, I point to, you know, things like the market cap of GameStop and AMC as evidence for how long these sorts of things can go on far, far longer than we ever think. They otherwise should. But again, I, I refer back to my original supposition, which is that I think I'm probably in the top fraction of 1% of people that even engage in the conversation, let alone the people that own crypto and stake their lives and reputations on it, that have even tried to read the original white paper. And I think there's probably like a few hundred people tops that are actually capable of rendering some sort of verdict on it, which is why I've always declared myself an agnostic on where this is headed. Like I, I don't know. And I don't think anybody else knows either, but these people all deluded themselves into thinking like, yes, I know what I'm doing. Here's my money. Yes. I know what I'm doing. Here's my name and reputation on this thing. Right? Like, look, I get it. Like Larry David's an icon. He's probably not going to suffer that much. Tom Brady's got plenty of other money. Like even now, like he, he he's not necessarily going to go down in flames with this thing. But why would you want to make a commercial for something? Why would you want to be Matt Damon and be forever mocked as associating with this nonsense where you clearly didn't understand and didn't know what you were doing and come up with these ridiculous taglines for things? Why would you want to build these businesses and exchanges and put your own money and reputation behind them when you clearly don't understand what they're doing? And I think the reason for that is just plain old simple psychology. It's the fear of missing out. It's that these other smart people are doing this. And if I know they're smart, if I know they went to MIT, if I know their IQs off the charts, they must be onto something that I don't, that I'm not onto. And I can't stand missing out on it. And I think that explains almost everything that's been going on. Well, there's one more wrinkle to add, which is also it's cloaked in a worldview. Um, and I think that's been part of what has driven Bitcoin from the beginning. And if you find that worldview inherently appealing, money free from state, free from clearly, abuse, yeah. no central bank. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of appeal to a certain category of people. And I think it's not that different than Theranos. And, you know, you talk more about changing the world than what your actual product does. Yeah, you clearly uh, need you know, multiple things to come along all together, right? This whole ethos of we're going to change the world. And let's be honest, like this wouldn't have taken off to the extent that it did if the timing weren't such that it coincided with the financial crisis, right? Where, you know, 100%. The, fin- the financial yeah, pillars, the system. Exactly. The financial pillars of our 
American style capitalist society and global financial system weren't shaken to their absolute core in 2008 and 2009. Like if that hadn't happened, this I don't think we'd be anywhere close to where we are today in terms of crypto. One other kind of amusing thing with that is crypto is supposed to be this like really different asset, uh, you know, an asset class with its own mind. Some called it an inflation protector. It's basically just a high beta, like a levered NASDAQ. In terms of returns and yeah, yeah. Well, uh, now not yeah, not right. if, you know over the last like call it three years, right. that's what it's become a levered Nasdaq. Yeah. So all the complaints about the it, it, it one of the funny things about it too is there are some people who complain about the lack of cash flow at certain growth tech companies who own Bitcoin, <laughs> and yet it's just a levered play on the same you know non cash flowing tech yeah, companies. That- the correlation, the, the factors are all <laughs> pretty related. That's for sure. No yeah. doubt about that. In the short term, anyway. In the long yeah. term, the NASDAQ well, is going up and crypto is going to zero. Amen to that. Well, I don't know about crypto zero. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a total skeptic of crypto. Um, well, I've got well, my what, issues, though. <laughs> what about this as a related concept, which is that, and, and I'll... I'll put this out there for discussion without endorsing it or uh, or giving my view on it until after I, I hear from you guys. But what about this notion that a shared ledger technology, however you want to characterize that, a distributed ledger that leverages shared access and cloud computing style technology is a very useful and intriguing idea and that there's all sorts of applicable real world uses that could be vastly improved by that innovation. For example, the real estate industry and buying and selling a home as you do in America with the title insurance industry and the physical I know closing. someone who built a successful mortgage servicer on that technology already. So yeah, I know where right. this is going. Exactly. So this is all good, useful stuff. Now it's been slow and painful and we haven't really gotten anywhere near the kind of adoption or impact you would expect. It's certainly a tiny shadow of actual cloud computing in terms of impact on the world or the personal computer revolution or whatever innovation you want to point to in the past. But what if what if that's the meat here and that all the crypto nonsense built on top of it, the the, the currencies like Bitcoin, the, the tokens, what if all of that is just a classic example of the financialized economy taking a good idea and going just way 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 too far until it's all ruined <laughs> well you know i think one of the beauties of that one, one of the things that happened in the last week is the eu pushed forward this digital product password passport idea where to be on the eu market from 2027 onwards um there's a push to have a dual like like the product's physical, but there will have to be a digital identity attached to it. And one of the best ways to do that is with a distributor ledger and blockchain. And so I think, you know, there are some really interesting, like very practical physical world applications in the process of getting developed, but it's very hard to get all the stakeholders in an ecosystem to come together you need someone like the EU to say, hey, this has to happen. You know, 2027, seemingly a long time away, that's five years. That's not that far. That'll be here in a flash. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's one of, the, one of the interesting manifestations of this all. And I do think that's where some of the smarter people in the space have been working rather than creating these uh, vehicles for financial engineering, which is, you know, I, I'd say pure nonsense. I, I think, um, you know, maybe that's, saved our system of having that sort of engineering happen on top of it. And we've had a much safer, sounder financial system for the last decade. So maybe we owe that to Satoshi for whatever reason or not. I don't know. Those are my thoughts. John, what do you think? Well, again, I probably, I'm I'm just going to defer to you guys because I think my views are just pretty darn black and white. And, um, you know, people can, uh, dismiss them because of that but uh i just think that if if any of these things were useful we'd see them 
in in use in real life you know like in in the real estate industry where you got the title insurers and all of that yeah maybe it's an inefficient process but it works and it's got it's got adoption and it's not it's you know it's not losing market share to whatever these blockchain based solutions uh, pretend to be i'm not seeing them actually adopted in real life and um you know then you have uh, other type of examples such as a company coming out of nowhere a few years ago called stripe um which has taken huge market share because it has something that um, is actually extremely useful to people like myself. Uh, works much better than than what PayPal offers in that space, and it wins in the market. So I think you know you just got to look at what's actually happening in the real world, and um, you know not just uh, focus on kind of the intellectual cuteness or appeal of these things. Yeah. So I. And circling back to answer my own question, I've always been sympathetic to distributed ledger technology as a potential innovation that seemed interesting, but far, far, far less of a big deal than would ever be implied by the attention it gets or the money it attracts. And I've always been somewhere between this uh, agnostic and an outright pessimist when it came to anything pertaining to a cryptocurrency or a token having any sort of value that could be ascertained or had any validity from number of reasons and you know everything that's come to light in the past few years has been somewhat incidental to that answering that question and and updating that belief but I'm certainly not more optimistic on that front than I was before if anything I'm far more pessimistic so for whatever it's worth in terms of my own views and biases on that. All right, great, guys. Well, we'll leave it there. I think uh, this was a great discussion and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.